Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Take your Bible this morning and open with me to the letter of Romans. Romans chapter 13. I'm going to finish a sermon I began two weeks ago. It's entitled Citizen Christian. And the first, or the second sermon really, uh, what I started two weeks ago was the role of government. So what I wanted to do is, first of all, I want to talk about what the role of government was. And two weeks ago we talked about how uh, that, that God ordained government as servants of his authority for our good. We see that in verse 4. And, and we began to lay a foundation of a biblical theology of government. What does the Bible say about human government? And I just want to remind you that as our aim is always, how is it that Christians live by faith under the lordship of Jesus Christ in our everyday life so that we can bear a faithful witness to his glory and his good in our life. And, and as I say that, I tell you, that's the very context and the consuming aim of this passage. That, that's the heart of what Paul is communicating to the church in Rome. And so I want to read the first seven verses of Romans 13 this morning before we continue with the message. Romans 13, verse 1. <clears throat> Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, Honor to whom honor is owed. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. In the first sermon, we talked about the role of government as God's servant of authority. And here's what we established as a first importance, that authority comes from God. He is the source of government's authority. And this principle of authority, we said, is important to establish first because the source of the authority is what determines the purpose that government serves, the scope and the extent at which that authority should be applied how it is that an officer of the government should be held and conducted in office, or rather elected, and then conduct themselves in office. And ultimately, it is the source that determines the origin of the rights of those that are governed. The origin of the rights. And that will become ever more important as we walk through this series. So as Christians, we believe that government exists for a higher purpose 
that it holds God's vested authority for His purposes in the world. And so what I want us to see in this message is that Christians recognize government as a servant of God's authority for the good of people in order to display His glory on earth. And in the first message, we talked about the role of government. Today, understanding that role, I want us to look at three explicit responsibilities that the Scriptures set forth for us that the that God has ordained the government with his authority to carry forth. And the first is simply what we see in verse 4. God's servant for our good. Government is a servant of God's authority for the good of people. Now when Paul begins to teach this and he says that the government exists for our good, he's speaking in a comprehensive sense. That this good is, is by God's determination and, and not just the uh, individual nor the comprehensive uh, uh, manifestation of the people themselves. That, that God defines what is good and what is not good. And what God desires is good for all people. You see, government rightly operating under God's authority bestowed upon them for the good of people is a collective witness in the world to the goodness of God that points to Him as Creator and ultimately in recognizing our need for a Savior as Redeemer. So God desires good for all people and He designated a way for that good to be established and maintained or protected in the world. So what is this good that He desires for us? Well, let's talk about this good in a Uh, in just a few moments here, so that that we can see it even as it's been applied in our own nation today. In America, the law of God heavily influenced the foundation upon which our laws for today were written and developed. In other words, the definition and the establishment of what good actually is. One modern scholar wrote this, but the reality is unavoidable. Christianity has done great good for our nation. Samuel Langdon was the president of Harvard College and he delivered a sermon to the Massachusetts Congress one month after the start of the Revolutionary War in 1775. That sermon was entitled, Government Corrupted by Vice and Recovered by Righteousness. At least with the first half of that sermon title, we know that's not new in our day and time, right? Here's what he said. Thanks be to God, that he has given us natural rights, independent of all human laws, whatever. By the law of nature, any body of people destitute of order and government may form themselves into a civil society according to their best prudence and so provide for their common safety and advantage. According to Samuel Langdon, good as was defined in the Founding Father's initial understanding, was a natural right independent of human law. In other words, the laws of the land that they were writing in that time did not establish what good was, but recognized where good came from. That God has given these rights to all people. This is why, historically, America has been considered and called a Christian nation. Now I want to talk about this for a moment because in the last year or so, maybe a little longer than that, this designation has become hotly debated. 
Abraham Kuyper, who I quoted in the first part of the sermon and have leaned on heavily and just pursuing an understanding of uh, of, of biblical theology for government. He was actually um, a Dutchman who helped in the reforming of the Netherlands after World War II and German occupation. And he echoes the same when he defines a Christian nation in this way. A nation that is not without God. That, is, that, that definition is important because it not only says what it ought to say, but it doesn't say what some try to make it say. It is accurate to say that America was founded as a Christian nation because God was recognized as one who bestowed the rights on people for the government to recognize over them. Now, this in no way hallows America. I'm not trying to do that. I'm not trying to, to, to make us something that we are not. I'm not saying that instead of Israel, America is now the recipient or the aim of God's promises. That, in fact, is not what we need to say, and we would be wholly wrong to say that. Christians are the recipients. We are the new nation of God, if you will. Incidentally, that word nation, when you see it in the Scriptures, we don't think of that word in the way that it was written. It, it's people. It's, it's a people. It's not a defined country as we think of it. It has both implications, surely. But just to help you understand that. But it doesn't make those who purport that America is a Christian nation religious nationalists either. And that's the accusation that is often leveled against those who oppose it now. Nor does it make America the aim or recipient of God's promises. I, I think we have, to, we have to manage a right understanding of what this means because in order to do so, we're establishing a theology of where does the good that we fight and labor for in this country come from? That's my point in this. And our founders recognized that that good came from God. They weren't trying to make a church They were building a nation on the creational common grace of God by His good. It does rightly recognize God's influence on the founders' intentions, those who were believers and many and most of which were not Christians as we would define today. So let me just put that out there. They still recognize God's influence on the founders' intentions to establish Him as the source of good for people. And so America is rightly called a Christian nation, to state how the law of God influenced the founding of America as good for her people by the establishment of its laws. I'll give you an illustration. The Declaration of Independence acknowledges we hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They're not trying to quote scripture. They're trying to apply it in their work. Rights that are unalienable are not transferable to another. And they're also not capable of being surrendered or repudiated. See, that's important, friends. We don't fight for rights in our country 
to make sure the government gives us the right ones. We fight for our rights for freedom because the government didn't give them at all. God did. And that's what these documents establish us in. Christians hold that we should not release inalienable rights of citizenship because we cannot. God gave them to us. We don't have the right nor the authority to take them away from anyone. We can only recognize them and regard them for the purposes for which God gave them. A number of years ago now, Springfield came into a very heated debate over an ordinance that the city council was wanting to pass for its community. And it was an effort to press the ordinance such that it would push to undo rights as inalienable in favor of government-determined specialized rights. Now, this was not a single effort. It was an effort that was transpiring across our nation, and it's not the only one of its kind. It wasn't the first time, and friends, I tell you, it won't be the last. But when we fail to relinquish or when we, when we relinquish the value of inalienable rights as being from God, and we begin to say that they come from government or the laws that it establishments, then there becomes a void that is left to fill. And, and I have found in my lifetime, government's happy to fill the vacuum created by that void. That they can make determinations that they are neither authorized nor able to make. That's why Christians and our faithful witness to the goodness and the love and yes, even the law of God, we're compelled by love to oppose actions that oppose God's law because listen, that which opposes God's law can never be good for people. That's foundational for us. Foundational. When rights get moved to be as from government, Instead of from God, it's always bad for people. Dave Miller in his book, God and Government, writes, When government loses sight of the function for which it was created, citizens are hampered in their efforts to achieve the purpose for which they were created, to obey God. Now, some would argue, but if I'm not a Christian, why would I need to obey God? Well, what I would say is that the founding fathers translated this in this way, is that citizens become hampered in their efforts to achieve the purpose for which they were created, to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is why a first and most important good that a government must serve is the freedom of religion. Not the freedom to worship, which is at the very point of our argument today in whether churches can regather for worship and we see that battle being fought on the west coast and likely in some other places as well not the freedom to worship the freedom of religion very different definition you go are we really arguing that Iowa a number of years ago already sought to define the first amendment not as freedom of religion but as only freedom to worship and once they can define what that means they can define what we can do in the midst of it but rather they must establish their rightful place as servants and not the source of God's authority. When government assumes the position to bestow instead of recognize rights, the first right to be infringed upon will always be the freedom of religion. They'll run at it from different ways, 
But it will be the ultimate aim. Government cannot bestow rights onto any people. But they try. History proves this, does it not? Their job is to recognize the rights bestowed by God in creation. God gives his good to people by the rights he bestows upon us. And he authorizes government to recognize and to defend those rights for us. And so the first and most important responsibility of government is to recognize and guard the rights of people bestowed by God. Now, another thing that's always bad for people is when rights are relinquished. Allow me to clarify this. I'm not saying that Christians should never relinquish our rights, distinctively as Christians. Let me explain. First of all, Christians remain ready at all times to lay down our freedom of Christian liberty for the gospel. This is explicitly taught. We know this, that that our liberties do not serve our self-interest, but our liberties are always to be offered to serve the gospel. Okay, So I'm not talking about religious liberty or Christian liberty in the Christian sense. We offer those to bless, love, and serve other people in Jesus' name. But also, Christians explicitly should be willing to personally lay down our rights as citizens, stay with me here, to serve the gospel and the common good of others. This is one of the fundamental aspects of of a missionary call. That that Christians would lay down the, the comforts and the conveniences that we enjoy in a nation that is established by these rights in order to give those up and, and even go into other nations where they don't have the same freedom so that we can preach the gospel. Do you understand what I'm saying here? I'm not saying that we allow the government to release them. I'll come back to that in a moment. But individually, personally, we can offer those up. That's the distinction I like to make. To go, Lord, these are my individual rights, but I'll offer those up in order to serve the gospel. That's always valid. But we never release the inalienable rights of people to government. And by never, I mean never. So that they get to replace what is every individual's responsibility by the chosen means of a few in control. We should not release our inalienable rights for one reason. We cannot. We cannot. Do you understand that? We didn't give them. The government didn't give them. And the government can't take them away. They try. And even in their best efforts, when they try, they have not removed them. They just have been set differently upon us. Rights establish our responsibility. And so as Christians, we should not only oppose the removal of inalienable rights, but we should fight to ensure that it never occurs for all people. For all people. When Christians defend the inalienable rights of every person, we're testifying to God's goodness for people. And we're also testifying for every person's individual responsibility. Before God. You see, how Christians regard inalienable rights serves for the good because we recognize God's purpose in creation to point to our need for redemption. Every time you see that speed limit sign, regardless of whether you're over, under, or spot on, you're reminded there is a standard, right? And there is a cost for not holding to that standard. Even in the most minute 
smallest ways, we begin to see our own responsibility and in the midst of that responsibility to recognize how often we fail. And some of you have become very comfortable with the failure of that sign. I'm not pointing any fingers. As acknowledged last week in establishing the source of government's authority, there's a greater purpose that we recognize in this. Look at verse 5 with me. He says this, Therefore one must be in subjection. Because why? Because those who break the law should have the judgment of the law executed against them. That's what he's just said, right? But there's another higher reason. Not only to avoid God's wrath, which comes through government, uh, um, uh, uh, the execution of justice, but also for the sake of conscience. You see, friends, conscience right here is the highest authority in the earth for individuals. As a matter of fact, as I said in the very first sermon that I spoke on the Christian conscience, your conscience can't make a wrong thing right, but it can make a right thing wrong. And while you won't always obey your conscience, you should never betray your conscience. Because you'll pay for it. And the way that government recognizes the rights of individual by God's design for our good should influence and shape the conscience of every individual in that culture, in that nation. And so how government exercises their authority should influence to shape people's conscience for good. Now we often hear you can't legislate morality. And while this is true, you have to be very careful with that because it can be misleading. You see, you can't make a person good, nor can you make a person moral by passing laws or executing justice in regards to those laws, right? Doesn't matter how many times you get a speeding ticket. You still have that heavy foot. Some of you do. Oh, maybe not for a while, but then you realize, right? I'm sorry. No more personal testimonies. But here's what you can do. While you can't legislate morality, you can force them to be bad when you legislate immorality. What must be done is to make good law that influences and shapes the culture for people. And the longer I live, the more I see the importance of this as a value. One cannot escape the reality that the state is a moral organism. That's not my argument. That's the argument of many experts through... Uh, through the ages. And this strikes at the heart of a major schism in our nation today, defining what is good, right, and just, and who it is that gets to make that definition. When people submit to the government, it should influence their conscience to be shaped by God's good for them. Whether they recognize Him or not, that's not the point I'm trying to make. Christians recognize that in this first responsibility of the state as for the good of people, at times we cannot make nor can we create good. But we can push back to resist or at least hold the line against the advancement of what is not good, against what is immoral, and what is just plain wicked. The first responsibility of government is as a servant of God's authority for the good of people that point us to the highest good, His glory for us. The second responsibility is the government is a servant of God's authority for the security of people. Look again at verse 4. 
Speaking of the government, Paul writes, does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. You say, is God angry? Yes, Romans tells us this. The wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness. And those who act in that way, who break the law, if you will, the government has a responsibility to avenge that. Now, there's a difference between the government avenging that with the authority God has bestowed upon them and us vindicating ourselves with vengeance. That is always wrong. This is always right. They don't do it in the right way. We'll come to that in later sermons. Security and protection for the good of its people becomes a government's principal responsibility. Paul establishes this. Peter establishes. Even Jesus establishes this. The founding fathers of America recognized that the purpose of government was to protect its citizens, John Jay said, from criminals within and enemies without, what he called domestic and foreign aggressions, enabling them to pursue a virtuous life. And the founding fathers in mass believed that the role of government was to protect its citizens. Government is to secure the rights of its citizens, not that it bestows upon them, but that it recognizes are from God. You see, this security of people holds two forms. The first form of security is this. It's sovereignty as a nation among the nations. Don't ever think that it is anything other than fully aligned with the will of God for a nation to be sovereign in the exercise of its authority. It doesn't mean it has to conquer. It doesn't even mean it should try to conquer all the other nations. But it should exercise and regard itself as sovereign among the nations. This includes three specific things. What is obvious? National security. It also defines citizenship and and the rights and responsibilities that we have as citizens. And ultimately the pathway or the process of immigration. How is it that one who was not born a natural citizen becomes a natural citizen? Paul and Jesus recognized the sovereignty of a nation in the way that they directed people to honor the rulers of those nations. Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Jesus was not threatened by that at all. Because he also said, give to God what is God's. In addition, the Old Testament establishes the rights and security of nations as nations continually. So often we read through the Old Testament and as it references all of these different nations, we often read right through that and take it for granted. But the fact of the matter is they were recognized as nations. So we see that the Bible repeatedly recognizes national citizenship as a distinguishing factor among people. Even by the recognition of foreigners and, and sojourners in the process of immigration even. Take the book of Ruth. The very book of Ruth itself is a story of sojourning. It's a story of immigration, if you will. And, and God had explicit commands that they weren't to glean to the extremes of their field so that sojourners could come and, and collect and have a way to eat and take care of themselves. Establishing a way to welcome people and become a citizen of a foreign nation. See, governments are responsible to secure their people by establishing sovereignty among nations. This doesn't mean that they establish it in such a way that no one can get in, but it means we understand where the line of citizenship begins and the boundaries that it establishes. Because we've properly guarded our borders, 
geographically, and our citizenship demographically. The second aspect of security is not only sovereignty as a nation among the nations, but it is security by the safety and rights of the people that are citizens of that nation. God ordains governments that people should live in peace without the threat of attack or abuse. Now, this is not only of persons, but also of property. That's what the Constitution means when it begins in the Declaration of Independence for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is the establishment of the individual rights of an American to have private ownership of property and all that is needed to pursue goodness and happiness in this world as defined by this world. It's interesting that I even have to argue this today, but I'm telling you, the arguments that are being thrown out there today are the fact that private property ownership is illegal. And my first response is, are you kidding me? But then I just say, Lane, wake up. Wake up. They're not kidding about anything anymore. It includes justice within the nation by punishing lawbreakers. That's what Paul explicitly teaches here. Bruce Ashford, theologian, says this. It is, in fact, the duty of kings to defend justice with physical force. And he cites Psalm 144, verse 1, in so doing. Even as Paul teaches here in Romans 13. It requires the establishment of laws that establish what is good. And it requires the enforcement of law and order to defend what has been established as good. And that is what provides and guards the peace within the nation. Now there's a right and a wrong way to do this. I'll give you one illustration even from biblical times of the first century. In the New Testament, Rome ruled the world. And, and, and their mantra was Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And they had one way of doing it. If you opposed us, we crushed you, and we have peace, right? Except for the one that just got crushed. So while it was executed incorrectly, and of course there have been countless ways that's been done, it doesn't mean that it shouldn't be executed. Francis Schaeffer said this, the state is to be an agent of justice, to restrain evil by punishing the wrongdoer and to protect the good in society. It is not right for us to sentence criminals, put them in prison wrongly, or when they have been put in prison correctly as justice, to be released without paying their debt to society. Two forms of injustice that we see most expressly, and I'll deal with those later as well. Protecting the good in society can take many forms, but one thing that government must not do is to cease to be vigilant in the execution of guarding and defending justice. Hear me, friends. We're living in a world that is burning because of government's absence of embracing its responsibility to do what God said it is responsible to do. And we'll argue about all the social issues that are surrounding it. But there is never a God-ordained justification to riot and destroy another man's property Because of one's personal angst. 
There's biblical grounds for civil war. But there is not grounds nor allowance for the destructive looting and rioting that is running rampant in the face of governments that watch it and validate it. In God's eyes, that is wickedness. A law enforcement officer once told me, sometimes we win, often we do not. But if we can't push evil back, we can at least hold it at bay. There are many ills in our world today of which need significant attention and change. And there is also a right way to go about that. And as Christians, we have a responsibility to represent the right means of pursuing the good that is right in our world. Governments are responsible to secure people by establishing and guarding justice for both persons and property within their nation. There's one final aspect of security that is important that is also hotly debated in our world today. And I want to give just a brief foundation to it as we talk about God's servant of authority to secure its people. One final aspect is this. Jesus told his disciples to take up swords because the world was a dangerous place. And we also learn in Romans that the government wields the power of the sword for the security of people. So we have two biblical statements here that we must ask. Do they contradict? Have they changed? Where do we stand with these today? And I argue that these do not stand in conflict but in harmony with each other. That individuals have the right of self-defense and the government has the responsibility to defend their right to self-defense. You see, the government is responsible to protect its people. And that neither negates nor removes, but rather heightens our individual responsibility of every citizen to defend themselves. The way that government is to secure its citizens is by guarding their God-ordained right to self-defense. Now, we can argue about the how of that, and there's plenty of room for that debate. But the fact that we cannot avoid is this. We cannot hand off to the government that they must only defend us as citizens, specifically in our country in the way that our government operates. It is every citizen's individual right to exercise self-defense for the good of our nation and the good of people in our nation. Now, you're not going to like this last one. You may not have liked the, the, the former one. But it is biblical. Verses 6 and 7. The government is God's servant of authority by the taxation of people. I'll be quick on this one. Nobody likes extended pain. Verse 6 says, For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Government is ordained by God to be able to collect taxes for the financial system of support and operations. It doesn't mean we can't argue about whether they collect too much or not. Just the fact that many would argue today taxes are stealing. There may be a level at which that is truth, but taxes in and of themselves are ordained by God so that the government can carry out their role. And there's plenty of room for corruption because anytime you put money and power together, corruption often follows but it doesn't mean that you can separate the two not everything is the government's business to meddle in or to interfere with 
We would surely do well to learn that today in our expectations that we hold of them. But listen to me. When we understand government's role, here's what we should understand. That government is never designed to provide life. But rather for the prevention and the removal of hindrances that suppress our goodness for the opportunity and the advancement of life. The role of government is to remove what hinders or threatens our good so that every individual can excel in that. And when they do otherwise, in other words, when the government becomes the source of handing out our good to us, they develop a dependency that they are neither designed to do nor to provide. It strips individual dignity. It strips individual value. It removes ingenuity and the ambition of individuals to advance themselves as God has created us to do. You see, God's good is most explicitly realized and cultivated in this way. Less government through less taxes. Government is responsible to collect taxes to fund that which guards and fosters the goodness of God for the good, the well-being, and the advancement of its people. And our responsibility as Christians is to recognize government as a servant of God's authority for the good of people to display His glory on earth. A few closing comments and I'll be done. We know that freedom is neither free, but I'll add to that, neither is it free to be messed with. And this is where we must hold our witness, friends, God's intent is for people's good through government. And we have a unique opportunity for active participation in it. Freedom in the world, basic human rights, reflects, though in person, imperfectly, the eternal freedom by faith in Jesus Christ. And as Christians come along with our faithful witness in the world, what we do is as we defend our freedom on earth, we declare the lordship of Jesus Christ who secures our ultimate freedom by his own blood. And so we as Christians live to bear witness to King Jesus' glory of true righteousness, true justice, true peace, and true good for all people. That's why the gospel remains the heart of our issue, and we cannot remove it from our citizenship. We must bring the lordship of Jesus Christ to the very center of our citizenship as Christians. And this theological foundation informs and fuels our witness to King Jesus in the public square, how it is that we do that. Let me ask you this, Christian. What is your witness saying to your neighbors today? There's plenty of things to loathe and complain about. But the number of things we can complain about as citizens shouldn't compare to the number of things that we can give honor and praise and glory to God about as his citizens as well. What is your testimony telling the world? The gospel is the heart of our witness. Last story. Uh, this last week, some of you may know this and others may not. My father passed away last Friday. Friday week ago, actually. And um, I was um, with my mother and my brother and my sister. Uh, we had gone in and uh, had an opportunity Friday morning about 9.30 to, to FaceTime with him. And at this point, he was no longer conscious in the sense of being able to see us and to carry on a conversation, but he could hear us, and you could see he was responding to what we were saying to him. And uh, we would speak to him, and you could see his lips murmur and hear him trying to articulate things through his oxygen mask. And, uh, but, but, but death was coming. It was very obvious that it was, it was very near. And so we went back out into the waiting room, and I mean, the second floor of the hospital was just 
It was a desert land. No one was there. And we were waiting on the doctor to come in. And, and we just agreed that we knew where my father was headed. We were not afraid of that. And while we were grieving deeply, we were not afraid if that was God's plan. And so we agreed and we prayed right there for 15 or 20 minutes. God, if you're not going to divinely intervene and heal him, take him. So we prayed that and a few minutes later the doctor came in and and we knew this visit was coming that they had been giving him very small amounts of pain medication to keep him so he could at least hear us and communicate with us. But from this point on, the pain medication would be amped up just to settle his body so that that death could come. And so the doctor came in to tell us that and very quickly he sat there talking to my mother and in those last few moments, my mother said, well, doctor, I want you to know something. That we're okay with where he's going and we're okay that he is going there. And I want to tell you why. And for the next four to five minutes, that doctor who came to bear very terminal bad news to a grieving widow got a very clear, direct presentation of the gospel from that widow. And he turned and looked at the three kids and we were like, Dude, if you're around her again, it's going to happen again. Just get comfortable. That's what she does. And she shared the gospel and she said, he's fine. We know where he's going. Do you? Do you? What is your witness saying to the world? Be very clear that no matter how bad things get, Jesus is Lord of all. Let's pray.